This is the Sports Chronicle podcast. I played the first kind of seven games in the la- my last season with o- Oyana and then got this real innocuous uh, knee injury against Claremont one kind of Friday night, really shitty Friday night game. And, uh, you know, from my experience with like injuries and weights or sorry injuries and pain and all that sort of stuff I was like thinking oh it's a three-weeker kind of job I've had I had lots of knee injuries or issues anyway so it just never cleared up and then the um the harder I tried the worse it seemed to get you know and I, I just couldn't run on it that was there was just the pounding the lack of cartilage in there and even though it wasn't really a cartilage issue I don't know if it if it exaggerated that that, that was the problem and and Kind of the season just dragged on, and I, like I said, I was banging my head against a brick wall with the um, with the medical side of things. There, um, like with all due respect, uh, the doctor was a guy who was like the the local kind of um, the the local doctor. Like he was dealing with like you know flus and coughs and that, and you know he was just he had no idea about professional rugby players and. Yeah, um, just struggled really with him a lot and then I went outside the club system to try and get help so I was travelling to London quite a bit and just ran out of time really, you know. Um, now of course I was 34, nearly 35 and uh, I, the decision was like, will I play one more year anyway? Uh, and I was, I, I know I probably would have because that's the kind of individual I am, you know, I just pushed myself on but, you know, um, I wasn't sure at that stage if I would and the dilemma was like how much damage is another year and you know, rugby going to do to you long term. So I had some chronic issues anyway. So, yeah, I just decided to kind of pull the plug around March, the end of that season, and, and uh, call it a day. I, I didn't look at it as scary at all, man. I was excited to get out. Like, I, I felt I had given everything to rugby that I could. I had no regrets. And um, I was excited about trying other stuff that I'd kind of um, developed an affinity and a passion for as I went along, you know, so I had these things in mind. I literally had a list of stuff that I wanted. I had written down a list of stuff that I wanted to uh, go and, and take on, uh, like, and try and achieve, you know. So, um, I, the, I, ideally, I would have finished playing, you know, but I, I didn't have that option. So some of these challenges had to be just put back a little bit till, till I got my knee correct, you know. But um, when that came good, you know, I, I um, yeah, I was really excited to kind of take on, um, you know, the the adventures that I'd learned about over the years of rugby. Obviously, the ones that are clearly on it are the um, Marathon de Sable, which is the, um, it was 257 kilometer race across the Sahara Desert, self-supported. Uh, the row, the row was probably the biggest one. Um, I would love to do the seven summits, so the highest mountains on each continent, and um, another kind of less less challenging physically and mentally, but kind of more about the travel and just seeing the world is cycle from um, the tip of um, the top of Alaska to the tip of Argentina, the Pan American Highway, and um, and travel the west coast of Africa through all the the countries from Morocco to like Cape Town by um, motorbike those individual things were um basically one was a documentary like the mds i saw a documentary by um by uh tg Cahar um on the donovan brothers uh from their three brothers from galway who did it in 2003 or two i was still playing for connacht and i uh, just happened to you know turn on the channel and i saw these guys running across the 
the golden or the red sands of the Sahara and I, I just yeah I just knew that was for me I love everything about these things like appeal you know I don't, I don't see any uh, negatives in them um, and then uh, I read a book about the row um, called uh, Crossing by James Cracknell and Ben Fogel I think I read that around, I was playing with Saints, so like 2006, 2007, they did it in 2005, so around then, and again, you know, as, as negative and as uh, uh, clearly as the book described the uh, um, suffering and the hardship of it, again, I just knew I would take it on someday. I wasn't sure at that stage that I would be a solo, I just knew I would try it, you know, I was probably thinking more of a four at that stage, but... As um, you know, as um, my history is like in team sports, I the further I get into that, and the more I kind of seem to uh, know that side of things. I was kind of more doing things on my own, you know. I'm pretty good on my own, pretty good in my own company anyway. Like so, I um, uh, I have more of a, a kind of attraction to that. When you're getting into um, uh, states of suffering that you know you just don't get into unless you push yourself in there or you find yourself there accidentally, you know. Um, and um, it's how you react to that suffering, really, you know, so are those hardships or whatever they may be. And I, I choose or I just find that I always seem to uh, relish those moments and I seem to grow. I seem to become a person I love to be when I'm in those moments. And and uh, it gives me a lot of um, strength and confidence just seeing that side of me. And uh, unless you push yourself in there and unless you go there quite regularly um you don't really um don't really understand it or um you know you don't really get the benefits of it so uh, i like to do it in my training also so i like to really push myself in my training um and uh and and get the get into those windows that gives you a lot of perspective and clarity and um i think it was an evolution you know i think it was just uh learning as i went and and true rugby um you know seeing the power of um you know improving physically and it almost becomes addictive you know because um well you see where it brings you you know it brings you a step further or a step closer or it deepens you a little bit you know to um deepens your character a little bit whatever so um you know that that really appeals to me you know i i think i um I integrated a, a side of kind of self improvement at a very young age you know when I was kind of in fifth year in the Bish, like I didn't even make my senior rugby team, like you know. Um, and I remember just I just wasn't I was completely unfit, and I just remember kind of making a choice to change that, you know, and start going to the gym at lunchtime instead of going up town and going up to Gowegians and running laps at eleven o'clock at night, you know. And I, that kind of you know the improvement I got from that those actions. Um, were very clear to me that, you know, you've put in the work, then you'll get the rewards, you know, and that, you know, like I said, it was almost like a, a drug after that, you know, the more I pushed myself or the more training I did, um, uh, the the better it seemed, to, the better I seemed to get it, whatever the goal was. Uh, I'm from Galway City, um, I'm from Renmore in Galway City, so it's just uh, just down from Galwegians Rugby Club. Two siblings, a brother and a sister, um, yeah, I grew up in... Galway went to the school in Renmore, uh, the National School in Renmore, and then went to the Bish in the city, um, and um, graduated out of there and or left there in 1998. And uh, yeah, lucky enough, obviously rugby was quite a um, you know a newly professional at that stage, and I, I lucky enough to get a um, a contract that in in 
the 99-2000 season. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of... Uh, it's not like now there wasn't a lot of depth in these rosters of rugby players, you know. There's no academy systems or that. So uh, I just was a big old lump and I suppose they, I kind of got, uh, very luckily got fast-tracked into the into the Connacht senior squad. And uh, yeah, I played there for uh, four years and then moved on to Northampton um, uh, for four years after that. And the journey continued to France and back to Ireland with Leinster and finished up in France um, um, kind of 15 years uh, career. There was a lot of uncertainty in 2002, 2003 with the province and, um, you know, my best mate, the guy I kind of, Johnny O'Connor, the guy I was kind of capped at like 19s, 21s uh, development. We were all always kind of together and all the Connacht um, representative honours at the same time as well. He'd left to go to Wasps, so... You know, there was that appeal uh, to go, um, you know, when I saw your, when I saw my friends going, but it was more just, just curious, you know, just curious to see uh, a different side of things and, and to, um, you know, to, to develop myself a little bit and push myself. And there was, over those couple of years or those four years that I was in Ireland, there was interest elsewhere, but like, I just didn't see that, uh, like if I went to another province that I'd say I wouldn't be getting a game for like three or four years, you know, so um, whereas Northampton was a bit different, I, I thought there was a, an inkling that I, I might might be able to get, a, um, you know, a starting position, um, you know, pretty soon and just develop through playing. When I was at Saints, um, you know, I was playing with Steve Thompson, Ben Cohn, Christian Short and uh, those three lads that actually, um, well, true Steve had signed for brief. Steve got involved somehow in the administration of the club um, after his first retirement. Um, when he did his neck, uh, he thought he'd never play again. So he was involved out there. There was a bit of an English backing, you know, financial backing. So I think that that was the connection. And and he rang me, you know, and I'd had a terrible season at Saints because I tore both my bicep tendons and I'd only played like six games or something after being like after playing basically 75 games without a without being out of the 22 so it's a real strange place for me um um just to be going through that because i'd never really had any major injuries before that so um yeah i, I was it, um france appealed as well just from all the years about going out there and playing in the european challenge cup or the european cup um just you know just there was a little bit of a a romantic appeal about it you know the the sleepy french towns and um yeah when you put when i put the two and two together and i coming off a really poor season with uh with saints i was like yeah i think i'll I'll give this a go and see what it's about brieve is lovely lovely little town yeah um it's it's quite a corner of france you know um but uh the Corrèze itself as well is is, is a really pretty kind of province so uh, I was really like uh, my last year of Breve, some sort of team here, but my last year of Breve was, um, well, no, I played fine. Like my, I felt my rugby was good, but um, uh, the, the coaching side of it was really poor. And we had some serious issues with like uh, a, play, a bit of a player revolt against the coaches. And um, yeah, I was just very fed up basically. Like the French rugby environment can be really, really frustrating. Like, you know, it's, there's so much money, but it's all misdirected, and a lot of their, um, a lot of the way they coach and that is, a, they're very slow to change, you know, and they've old school attitudes, and 
Yeah, I was just, I played like kind of 75 odd games for the club and I was just, you know, a bit fed up with it all. And there's two and fro ones the whole time between like the coach and, and the players. And, you know, they're just very basic and use a lot of kind of emotional blackmail, you know, when they're coaching you like every year, every week, like this is the best team in France you're playing. And you're like, wasn't the last week's team the best team in France, you know? You're kind of going like we're not 12 year olds you know you can treat us like adults so i was fed up basically so um i asked my agent like to put the word out and i am um, i saw that uh um nathan hines was leaving leinster and i said well, what's the story with leinster is there any chance like it's rent happened there and uh he contacted them and i think they were in a deal with mike mccarthy but it fell through uh, he decided to stay in Connacht, so the opening came up for me, and yeah, I was absolutely delighted. I, I was really, um, I was really trying to get back to Ireland at that stage, so I went over and met Joe and Jono and um, Richie Murray, you know, Greg Feek, and uh, yeah, I just chatted away, and obviously, you know. Um, uh, I, I felt I had a good connection with them straight away. You know, they're very honest guys. You know. There was no bullshit about them, and uh, yeah, I just got just felt a good feeling about it, and it all stacked up. I wanted to get back to Ireland. They were an amazing team. They just just won the Heineken Cup. Yeah, they just won the Heineken Cup. So like you know, it was a no-brainer. Like you know, um, the first six months at Leinster was uh, bizarre. Um, I felt like I it's so strange because I'm Irish, obviously. I know the culture, but I felt out of my culture. You know, because three years in France, completely different, very lackadaisical kind of attitudes. And I was living out in the middle of nowhere in the country. And I just got thrown into this uh, environment that was, you know, night and day compared to the training I'd gone through. And I was just trying to f trying to find my feet again um, with a lot of demands pushed on me. And I didn't feel I was fit. And I didn't feel um, I didn't feel comfortable in the city either, particularly if I'm being honest. So, um, not in a city, not the city. So, um, yeah, it took me a long time to kind of get my head around that, and I felt I started playing a bit better. I had a couple of decent games in the Heineken Cup, but I wasn't happy with my form. I would say I had like four good games in about twenty-two or three, whatever I played that year. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was really kind of just you know, a little bit disappointed with myself. So, uh, yeah, I put in a good off-season and um, came back and I felt oh, really happy. And my training had changed a little bit just from talking to the, um, the S&C staff who were absolutely amazing there. And um, played the first seven games of that season and I was really, really happy where I was at. I felt I was playing some of the best rugby in my career. Uh, just, you know, just real solid games, you know, consistent solid games. And and um, and then Stephen Sykes uh, decides to go back to South Africa. <laughs> So uh, I read in the paper one day that like Leinster are approaching bad Brad Thorne and I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> everything had just turned around for me. I was happy where I was at. And then, you know, they signed this guy who's like won Everton's an absolute incredible rugby player and professional. So, yeah, uh, it wasn't great. Um, and then I did my shoulder in, oh no, sorry, I, uh, um, I had issues with my shoulder the year before and uh, it had, we had, avoided surgery that summer and uh, it had held up those first seven games and playing against Claremont and the Aviva and made a tackle on Bardi and uh, yeah it just went I knew it was gone so um, I suffered on for about 10 or 11 minutes till half time and then kind of came in and it just froze and yeah that was the end of my Leinster career I never played again man it was, um, well, it was a nice stage to go out on but 
I fought to try and get back, but it, it just couldn't, didn't come right. It took about eight months in total, you know. When I hear about Robbie Henshaw coming back from a shoulder reconstruction in 10 weeks, I'm like, Jesus, I would have paid a lot of money for that back then. But, um, yeah, what can you do, you know? Um, so Oyana picked me up, thankfully. I, I went over, I was still in a sling when I was talking to them, you know, but they were very keen, um, I think, on a couple of recommendations and that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was great. Um, eventually got back playing the start of pre-season, like a game or two into it. And, uh, yeah, I felt I had a really good first year there. I was really happy with the way I was playing. And then, uh, then I had the knee injury in the second season. And that was that. When I was at Saints, we used to do a lot of erg work, um, the indoor roar, you know, um, just especially the bigger guys for off-feet conditioning. So I always had a inkling that I was pretty good at it. There was a guy at Saints called Luke Harbert who did a lot of rowing in his youth. And he said, geez, your times are pretty good, you know. And uh, so I, I kind of always like, what would you say? ventured towards that rather than a treadmill or rather than a watt bike or well there was no watt bikes back then but a, a bike or whatever so um yeah i did a lot of work and built up a lot of volume and i could see obviously my time's coming down and uh built up this love hate relationship with it so i think it was johnny claxton who uh, was an snc guy from new zealand who came into um leinster brought in this rowing golf and it was it was um, an optional session that he put on the wall. Uh, my, that was my second year when I was injured. So when I actually had um, facilities to, uh, physical facilities to actually get back rowing because I didn't put, my, it, my shoulder could row. Uh, I just couldn't, um, pushing was the real problem with it, you know. So uh, yeah, I just started doing it. And then uh, myself and Tom Denton had a little bit of a, a kind of, records you know breaking each other's records for a little while and then just one day i just <laughs> pushed by him a little bit and got the i think it's um the score is called 18 under basically you know so um and i believe it still stands even though i've beaten it since that on my own <laughs> that's all that that's all there that's all there is to it is ergometers i've never been in a river rowing boat um I bought an ergometer then when I was in France, you know, and just had it in my house, kind of had a little gym in my house just for just for my own training, going back to the problems with, you know, the club training. So I just took responsibility for it for myself. So I've always loved training anyway. So it was it was an easy fit, fit for me. But um, yeah, simply uh, I kind of another one of those bucket list things that I had down was to compete in the Irish Indoor Ch Rowing Championships to kind of see where I was at, you know. So I went down a couple of years ago just before the Mountain de Sable because I would have used a lot of uh, erg work in that to, to get fit. And um, I came like, I think it was fifth in the 2,000 metres. This was against all the guys who were like um, hopeful Olympians. And I won the 500, uh, the shorter, power, more power kind of base distance, you know. So... Uh, I was pretty happy with that. Uh, broke the Irish record actually as well, and then went down again just before the row because obviously there was a lot of rowing in my training. And uh, yeah, broke my old record for the five hundred and um, broke the thousand meter record, the Irish record as well. So yeah, I just have um, I just have a love hate relationship with the machine. It's just like it's it's suffering, it's suffering. You know, a two k a two k time trial on an ergometer looks into your soul. Like, I mean, it is. If you want to see what you're made of, you go as fast as you can for six and a half minutes on an erg or six minutes, and uh, you'll 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 know exactly who you are at the end of that. I don't believe in trying to recreate um, an event, especially a lo ultra long endurance event for in training. You know, so for example, when I ran the Mountain de Sable, the longest distance I ran without stopping was two kilometers. 
and this is to do a 257 kilometer race so basically when you're training for any event like these um what you're doing by running 10 15 20 miles is building volume so i just build my volume differently i just do it through interval training and at much higher intensity that means you don't have to do as much as 20 miles a guy who's running 20 miles at like 50 percent if you run you know 10 miles at 80 percent for example it's very it's equivalency kind of thing so um, I did the same with the erg um, erg training you know um, I did uh, a lot of short stuff I wouldn't have really gone over 10k in my volume of a training but very high intensity stuff so you know you're you're getting a lot of um, a lot of good stuff back you know and not getting any I call them junk meters just waste of time you're not getting anything from them uh, and any of the long stuff then I, I always had the um, luxury of just taking the boat out and going for like eight hours or ten hours or whatever and there's a big difference between eight hours hours on the water and eight hours on an erg you know it's uh, one of is very enjoyable one of them is just you know just nobody wants to do that like that's where the drive comes from that's where you, you don't see it any clearer than in a really tough match like you know where you know you're you're almost in a, a flow state you know a, a game where you just you're just loving it like you're just like everything is going your way you're almost in a flow state you're making those hits and you're suffering and you're dragging guys with you and you just feel so powerful you know when you when you get into that state um i try and uh, well that's a big hole when you leave rugby so you need to fill it somehow and i find the true adventures that i can fill it from time to time you know when i really do push myself into those places and uh um, and kind of delve into that kind of savage warrior part, you know, that doesn't come out. It's very hard to get it out just walking down the street there in, in Dublin or Galway, like, you know, without getting arrested anyway. I loved playing against Simon Shaw. I just, I admired him as a player uh, so much. Um, and uh, I saw a little bit of myself in him, you know, so I just thought he was a class player. And I don't know, Wasps at the time were like nearly the big team. You know, they were winning a lot of stuff in England and Europe. So I love games against him, Danny Grucock, uh um, and Martin Johnson as well. Myself and Martin had a bit of a scuffle up in an East Midlands derby once. Uh, um, my first year at Saints, and I don't know what, but just basically uh, he was doing what he does uh, in a mall off a line out that uh, I had won. And back then, you know, you could kind of give a few digs or a few elbows, like kind of to push them off. And he took offence, and <laughs> we just started the punches started flying about eleven minutes into an East Midlands derby, as they often are you know often do like so um yeah like and i was only 24 you know he was captain of england the lions obviously this legendary um, player in the game so uh like that was a huge uh huge uh, litmus test for me at the time so um you know i was quite happy i didn't back down if nothing else uh and it's still i think a lot of my mates favorite part of my rugby career <laughs> the two of us got yellow cards i think you know, it was from a line out in a mall, so there's a lot of lads grabbing arms and that. I think there was a couple of, well, I'd be, I'm generously saying there was a couple of slaps landed. Like, I don't know who they landed on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it got broken up pretty quickly and the two of us got our marching orders for 10 minutes. Um, uh, so those are two. And I remember great games in, in France, like... French League is, is strange, like, because you could have the easiest game of your life in the French League. Like, a team just won't turn up, like, a Perpignan, they won't turn up away from home. Stade Francais. But then you could have the absolute toughest game of your life as well. You know, you play Toulouse and they're up for it, or uh, Clermont, you know. And there was some of those games I really loved, you know, the real, real attritional French League, you know. Um, uh, just, yeah, I, I remember them fondly. I think we played Toulon uh, my last year. Um, in Oyana, or sorry, no, my first year in Oyana, and uh, 
we were four points down at home, four points down with like ten minutes. Uh, yeah, ten minutes to go, and we had a yellow card as well. And uh, we came back and won it, and it was like something like. 31 26 or 27 a real a great game like you know just remember been sitting in the change room afterwards and that just that uh contentment of uh the battle you know where you're like you couldn't be happier like you just couldn't be at a, in a better state like because it was just war for 80 minutes and you 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 gave every like you pushed as much as yourself into the game as you could like you know and you know, I'll happily admit, I, I think I played over 300 games. A lot of them weren't like that, you know what I mean? So um, when when you do get like that, yeah, it's a, it's a moment to savour with teammates, obviously, and yourself. Um, and yeah, from time to time, I'd find myself, I don't miss much about rugby, but I miss that, I miss the battle, I miss the physicality side of it. I, I saw a bit of an evolution, obviously, because my first year was in 2008. And uh, it was a lot more vicious back then than it is now. You know, they've, they've had to clean up the league because of TV, you know, simply. And, and they needed cleaning up anyway, you know. So, uh, like, my first year in um, uh, in Brief, uh, my opposition was a guy called Aaron O'Mella, who had this, like, I mean, terrible disciplinary record. Like, I, he used to play for Albi. And he was known as this hard man of French rugby. And, and he, loved the, he loved the scrap. I mean, he loved it. And, um, you know, he was never far away from one, starting one or finishing one. And he, he hit a lethal uh, right hook on him. But um, I remember playing against him in Oyana, um 2015, probably my last year, or 2014. And he was a changed player. I mean, like, I mean, that wasn't in his game. It couldn't be in his game because he had to survive, you know, and you would have just did the, the, the league cleaned things up quite a lot. And, uh, you know, those... Um, those kind of 30-man brawls kind of spilling over the side of the pitch are relegated to Pro de Deux and Federal 1 now, you know, and even there I think they're cleaning them up quite a bit, you know, but it depends on the issues you have, of course, like, but it's very important that you don't see yourself as a rugby player. I think if you wrap your identity or your self-worth up and been a rugby player, you're you're making things much harder for yourself when you're sped out, which is already hard enough, you know, because, um, you know, rugby gives you so much direction in life like I mean you know if you have any modicum of uh, ambition rugby is is the vehicle that's going to you know drive that ambition and that direction and especially in you know in those early years your 20s and that with, with that like you know it just it's a it's a comfort you know that that's there and, and you're doing what you love and you know your whole lifestyle every choice you make is revolves around that so uh, when the end comes you know and you don't have that direction anymore like and you're a little bit lost it can be really really difficult what I you know I like I said I always knew I was going to go into like these adventures like I like I don't make any income in fact I give most of my savings into them but that's not the point I I just have to do them you know they're inside me it's it's just listening to that um, internal compass and I've learned to value those feelings and that trust or I've learned to um, trust it through a lot of trial and error and analysis and um, I feel I have a really strong relationship with that kind of, uh, if you want to call it internal compass or gut instinct or intuition or whatever. Uh, and that, I just couldn't do anything else. I wouldn't be able to get up in the morning and look myself directly in the in the mirror, you know, and, and be happy. So um, if some good comes of this, if I can find some way um, of uh, making an income of it or whatever, great. But if not... I don't really care, man. I'm just, I'm very happy doing this, you know. And uh, I think, uh, 
you know, life is, um, well, I look at, like, I, I look, I kind of reverse engineer life a lot, you know, I, I've written an epitaph of myself and what people want to say about me. And I, I work back from that. You know, what are people going to say on, when you're in the coffin and they're talking about you, you know? And I use those motivations to drive me into my honest, kind of sincere endeavors. And, and, and these are them, and, and that's why I do them. And, and you know, um, I find the, the motivation very easy with, with kind of framing things like that, you know? I will say that, there, of course, there was times where, um, especially younger um especially in the early days of my career. But as you kind of progress through the years and as you have to survive in that environment, you and as you push yourself more into it, you kind of see it for what it is. You know, you, you, it's not, it doesn't become, or it doesn't have the same level of importance. The more you've invested in it, the more you've kind of um, thrown yourself into it and absolutely 100% committed Um you, yeah, you just seem to um, have a better perspective of what rugby is in the bigger scheme of things, you know. So I would definitely have been a, you know, if, if Twitter was around when I was 24, I would definitely have been a professional rugby player in my bio, you know. But uh, I'm not an ex-professional rugby player in my Twitter bio now, you know, because I feel like you have to cut all, I'm sorry, I had to cut all ties with the game, you know. I just, I, I couldn't hang on tent and I don't want to play a, a friendly game I don't want to play a charity game I'm not interested like I just I needed that break from the environment um, because I felt like I I'd kind of I'd fallen out a little bit of not no I was just a little bit disillusioned at the end you know and I I, I, I felt like I'd just given everything of myself to it and it was time to just do something completely different and cut all ties for a little while. I'm not saying forever. I still love the game and I'd love to do some coaching in the future. But, um, you know, if those first two years were, um, there was no question that I was going to do anything involved in rugby, you know. With the row, I, I really wanted, so I, I raised a bit of money um, for the MDS, uh, during the MDS, about 7,000 for um, Irish motor neuron disease and uh, a school I visited in Tanzania called uh, Armani. But I'd just done it online, you know, very safe and whatever. So with the row, I wanted to respect the row and kind of have a charity fundraising thing um you know, in the kind of same, I don't know, that that kind of emulated it. So um, in regards to three charities, like MSF, I've kind of followed for years and years as well. Followed is now a, you know, a new term, but I followed them and uh, I just have so much respect for their values, you know, and I really wanted to do something. And this is my kind of way of doing something for them. Like, I just think they're you know, an amazing organization, you know, they're at the, like, they're right in the most tumultuous, dangerous situations in the world. And a lot of those people are, are pro bono, like they're your, you know, your doctor or your, um, you, and the local nurse or the anesthesiologist or whatever, you know, so, and they're putting themselves in that situation. Actually, I heard an amazing podcast on a Desert Island Disc for Dr. David Knott, who's a British surgeon who goes out to like, uh, well, he goes everywhere, Syria, true MSF, Syria. Uh, it was, you know, get the Kleenex ready when you're listening to that one. Like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and that just like, this was on the board actually, because somebody advised me to listen or recommended for me to listen to it. So um, yeah, I just, I love that compassion in people. I think it's an amazing quality and, you know, the bravery and the courage that they have to go out there into those situations and to help other people. Um, 
yeah, I've nothing but admiration and, and this is my little way because of helping them, you know, as much as I, I'd love to, you know, be hands-on, uh, I just don't have the qualifications. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's why MSF. Um, Madra, I'm a dog owner and dog lover and uh, obviously a Goegian, so they're based out in Connemara and they're just a, a, they're a small little uh, charity that are rehoming dogs, you know, taking dogs out of the pounds and into their shelters and trying to get them, as they say, forever home. So, uh, yeah, I, I just appreciate and I'm uh, very uh, appreciate the um, relationship that you can have with a dog. You know, obviously been a dog owner and uh, I love the fact that they're trying to put, you know, make that happen, not just from, you know, the dog's perspective, but put, put the relationship together with, with, their, um, with their humans. So, um, yeah, again, just a little bit of, you know, admiration for them. And uh, Strong Roots actually is a pretty funny story. I was traveling in uh, Rwanda and the Congo uh, a couple of years ago, and I use, I use a website called couchsurfing.com uh, now it is. And uh, that just um, basically you get to stay with locals um, if you want. You know, they can host you for a night and put you on the floor or the couch or the bed if they have one. So I, I like doing it, uh, especially in um, kind of developing countries because you really get a a proper insight into their lives and their culture and how they live day to day. So I was in contact with this guy, a few people in Rwanda, um, a guy called Blaise Pascal. And uh, we got at, well, we were meant to be coming back into Kigali from the Congo. But we got held up in the Congo anyway for an extra couple of days. So I actually never got to meet the guy, but we kept in contact through Facebook. And uh, yeah, he just started posting a lot of stuff. And then, you know, I was asking him about it and he was telling me like his story so so basically it's a sorry it's a school for um orphans or street children so he was just and then one day he just told me his story and his story was just like i mean it just blew me away it was and he doesn't mind me telling it so um uh, so basically he's the youngest of three boys um um his mum left the family when he was three years old just walked out and never came back they never saw him again or never saw her again um three years later his dad passed away of illness so left the three lads um on their own basically um his older brothers are a little bit older than him uh so the first older brother was like kind of 13 around that stage and he went out um trying to make a little bit of an income for them just repairing punctures on on bicycle tires just on the side of the road like if anyone's been to africa they'll know there's you know just lads you know businesses are on the side of the road basically so um so he did that for a couple of years and then the second oldest brother joined them and the two of them were working together um uh, one day, 1994, they left the house and never came back. The Rwandan genocide happened and, uh, uh, you know, nobody knows what happened to them. Uh, so they left little kind of Blaise Pascal on his own as a, an eight-year-old on the on the streets. And he survived two years on his own just, you know, as we do, kind of instinctively. And, you know, by uh, just, he was saying himself, scrounging out of bins and just finding a way to, to get some food and, and shelter. And then he was picked up... Um, picked up sorry he was befriended by this lady who he calls a widower and um, she uh, after some time she brought him into his home and put him back into school and he ended up uh, graduating as an 18 year old with a certain languages and uh, yeah the story then goes into Uganda he went and taught there for worked in a bar for a while then went to Uganda talked there uh, taught there in a national school his local dialect and then came back to Kigali and uh, uh, he's about a year in Kigali and on his 30th birthday he started uh, Strong Roots Foundation, you know, basically to stop what happened to him 
happening to kids on the street now. So, yeah, just hearing his story and with the row and everything, I was like, yeah, man, I'd love to be able to do something for you. So um, he was obviously only too happy. And uh, um, and uh, the plan is that uh, I'm probably going to go out in June and um, we're going to hopefully build a new school building for the, the foundation because at the moment they rent the building and just they don't have the funds to pay for the rent or they just about find them every month or every three months. So uh, we have a bit of land. So now we're, I think we're, we have enough, about twenty five or 6,000 between each charity. So we're going to hopefully be able to build that school and uh, you know take that, that stress and you know, away from them of the rent and that. Elmo is my dog's name. Yeah, he's uh, like, the thing is with Elmo, the great thing is if I went to the shop and came back 10 minutes later, I get the same welcome if I was away for four months at sea. So yeah, it cheers you up, you know, especially over the years coming in from, I'm single, so coming in from rugby, um, training and, you know, empty house, but you got the dog, you know, and he just welcomes you like he hasn't seen you in six years. Like, so it's pretty amazing. So... The steering um, on an ocean rowing boat, you can do two different methods. You can go with foot steering, which is a real basic way to go across. It means basically your foot is attached to a couple of lines that are attached to the rudder, and they, that's how you steer. Uh, or you can go auto, with an auto helm, which is a machine that you put in the in the back of the boat that's attached to the rudder, and you don't have to worry about your steering. It steers itself, basically. So you won't be surprised to know I went foot steering, kind of the hardest way you can do it. Um, that broke on day 17. So what was an uh, incredibly diff difficult endeavor just became 10 times more difficult because um, steering a boat with so when the steering breaks, you have to steer with the oars, and steering a boat with the oars is very, very physically demanding. Um, so uh, I, I think one of my great strengths is I process things really quickly and come back to what I can control. So when I realized that happened, I knew what I had to do, but I didn't dwell on it. I didn't feel sorry for myself. I literally, you know, over the course of maybe a couple of minutes, realized like that, well, listen, I've still got a boat that floats, I've still got a seat, and I've still got two oars. I can still get there. And just that, I remember that like time, just that reaction was kind of, um, yeah, it just stands out to me so much because um, everything inside you and everything is, everything inside you is kind of go the other way, you know, feel sorry for yourself. But um, I think it's just down to been in that situation lots, well, not to such gravity, but it been in that situation and just having those processes is kind of almost like second nature now that, you know, gotta gotta control what you can control and i could still get there so i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna kind of wallow in self-pity you know which which would have been the easy thing to do day one was like i've said it a few times just such a, a absolute nightmare um some of it was down to my own doing and some of it wasn't so Basically what happened on day one is obviously it's this huge emotional peak, you know, you say goodbye to your parents and also there's the the um the realization of something happening that you've kind of poured yourself into over eighteen months and it's taken over. So that's you know, I remember just pulling away from uh La Gamera or pulling out the marina and like one minute I'd be hooping and hollering and just like I mean, just on the highest buzz ever, and the next minute I'd be crying. Like, I just, I couldn't explain it, like, why it was going like that. But yeah, I think it was, there were tears of joy, I think. But uh, yeah, like I said, it was just this crazy roller coaster. So you have all that that comes into play. And then things started going wrong after about six hours or seven hours rowing. So um, my heels started to blister up. Um, all these calluses on my hands tore off. And then I had this extreme cramping in uh, my lower limbs, like the major muscle groups, quads, hammies, 
calves like cramping like I've never had in my life and uh, I've done quite a lot of physical stuff so you know when you're rock the thing you can rely on in any situation is shook I, I, I was just like I was like what is going on how can this be happening you know this is such an important thing and yeah you know you have to remember it's a race as well so I was kind of feeling like I was like losing ground in the race and then um then I, I took the decision to kind of put my head down for an hour and try and get some water into me um sorry because I was seasick as well of course you know so puking constantly and then I, I just I needed an hour's rest to give my body some sort of chance to recover so I, I put the head down for an hour I got up and I'd been blown back a mile the weather had shifted and we were getting headwinds so um, that mile, it took me another three hours of rowing to get back to the point on the GPS. I remember it correctly. It was, I remember it exactly. It was 42.2 kilometers. Um, so I, my decision then, or sorry, my plan was then, to, okay, like it's it's midnight now or one o'clock. So I'll put out a, a thing called a power anchor, which is a, it's an anchor that you use in, um, uh, when you can't use a ground anchor when the sea is too deep. So it's just like a parachute that sits in the water, uh, holds about two tons of water in it and stops you getting blown back. So so I did that um, and there's a lot of faff involved in that. You know, you have a lot of rope, you have 90 metres of rope and then 115 metres of retrieval line. So it takes a while. So I did that, finally got into a bed, uh, woke up five hours later, like five, six in the morning and saw I'd been blown back a mile and a half and that's not meant to happen. So with all the physical issues that were going on and now this um i was like i was like what the fuck like that was the first time i remember pulling in the rope still pitch black pulling in the retrieval rope and the conditions were big enough I was getting hit in the face away was just going you know what's going on like if this continues i you know i mightn't if this continues for three or four days i don't know if i have the capacity to to get out of here you know um so I was frustrated, a little bit disappointed, angry, pissed off for all those reasons. So again, I just decided just to go to work, know what I, sorry, control what I can control and do what I know. So I just hopped on the oars and I rode for seven hours straight and rode till one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and I hardly got anywhere. I only got four miles, like normally you'd be a, should be getting way, way more. But um Two other boats were in the exact same situation as me and they didn't row for seven hours. And one of us got away and the other two didn't and they had to be pulled in after uh, three days of trying to get away from those conditions, that localised low pressure. So, um, yeah, retrospectively, obviously, I look back and I go, that that moment or, you know, saved my race. But, I mean, the whole run-up to it, man, I, I, you know, I was completely in, like, a very negative space and... Yeah, I was completely rocked. Shook, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. I brought, um, <laughs> you like this one, I brought, uh, like, I must have paid about 400 euro in audiobooks, like, about a week before I left. And uh, I had never used them in my training, but, and there's a speaker system either side of the rowing position. But uh, on day four, when I put um, when I put my first audiobook on, I realised I couldn't hear the voices over the wind. So one of those books was Shackleton's Endurance. So it's still sitting on my phone here waiting to be listened to. <laughs> so yeah, that, well, that day in itself was just like the craziest day of my life because I, I capsized earlier that day. Sorry, I just capsized before that and I was sitting out on deck. And when I came out on deck, the whole wa- the whole level of the deck was covered with water. I'd never seen that before. You know, normally you get a bit of water and just pump it off. So I was a bit worried about that and was just pumping stuff off with a thing called a bilge pump, which automatically pumps it off. And I had a couple of buckets and I was just... I kind of sitting there a little bit in shock because I'd just been thrown against the side of the cabin. I'd split my head open. You know, I'd done my first capsize, which, you know, is kind of something you're 
looking forward to in a strange way. Uh, well, you you hope you might get to experience, but then you don't hope it as well, if you get me. But um, yeah, and then I just heard the noise of the blowhole and uh, I saw the dorsal fin kind of up to my right and then it just swam around the boat and it swam around the boat like five or six times. And on one of those circles, when it was back in this position, it just stuck its left eye up and made eye contact with me. And I was like, man, this is fucking unbelievable. This is exactly the kind of stuff I wanted to happen, you know. Um, and then it kind of nuzzled the boat and then kind of came right down beside the gunnel, the side of the boat here. And if I had reached out, basically, I would have been able to touch it. Um, no, not scary at all. Just like awe-inspiring. Like, I mean, the hairs on your every kind of square inch of skin were standing up like uh, you know and you're kind of going yeah nobody's going to believe this <laughs> yeah i i felt it was curious and playful that's the two things i felt um for some reason you know i i, I probably put it down to it wasn't a huge whale so it was probably like an adolescent you know and just curious like and just wanted to see what it was at and you know, that day, as that day went on, because I capsized again later that day, and then I came close to capsizing three more times. I thought I saw the dorsal fin, and, you know, your mind's playing all sorts of games, and, yeah, because I thought I saw... Uh, sorry, I was like, that whale's trying to tell me something or trying to communicate with me in some level. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I put it down to the stress, man. Even as I was crossing, I was thinking about what was next, you know. Um, well, you have a lot of time to think anyway, so... Uh, there's there's a few adventures that are well there's ones written down of course and the the seven summits is one that really appeals to me I I love mountains I love the challenge of mountains you know the the lack of oxygen brings a different element to challenges you know just because you it becomes almost meditative you know you you have to control your breathing to such a level that you you can hardly concentrate on anything else just you basically have five percent concentration on putting one foot in front of the other and ninety five percent on using the the little amount of oxygen that's in the air you know so I've had had, um, had, I struggled up Kilimanjaro one off-season, actually, between, um, I think it was Leinster and Oina. Um, and, uh, yeah, just I, I, it was one of those really rewarding experiences that, like, uh, you just kind of, it grows in you as time goes by, you know. So um, I've done a little bit since then, but, um, you know, I've done Mont Blanc and a little bit of stuff in Afghanistan at high altitude, but nothing like... Uh, you know, the seven summits will entail, you know, but uh, I think that's something I'll definitely do um, on, uh, for numerous le for numerous reasons, um, for the fact that it's, you know, seven corners of the world that I've, well, six corners of the world that I haven't been in and um, just for the adventure of it and, of course, the challenge and I think it'd be something pretty incredible to, to have done as well. And uh, I definitely do another ocean row as well at some stage, but not as a solo in a team, kind of uh, just a different element and get to share that experience with people, you know. More so the mountains than the row, I would like to kind of, you know, maybe lead a group or groups up different mountains and just kind of prepare them firstly, physically and mentally, and then show them kind of the, the, you know, the positives and the, the great things that come out of trying and challenging yourself and pushing yourself and, uh, you know, achieving something, hopefully. Um, in, in regards of row, I'd be very selective in who I do it in a boat with, you know, I, I would have to feel that they are, um, you know, uh, able to take care of themselves because it's just, it's just too dangerous to take your own focus off yourself out there. Like, because, I mean, it's she's just... She's just a monster. Like, I mean, you have to be so um, concentrated and vigilant in just the way you move and what you're doing and your actions at all times. So if I'm taking my concentration off what I'm doing just to watch other people, then that compromises my safety and, and you know, ultimately perhaps to my life. So I'm not, not 
kind of willing to do that. So um, anyone who comes on a boat with me will be pretty, um, you know, self-reliant. This is the Sports Chronicle podcast. 